People try to tell me all the time about this new California barbecue place that opened up down here or over here, or you got to go up here, or really the best ones up in Northern California. And I'm just, I'm done. I'm just done. Um, because I've come to the conclusion based on trying enough places here and then having come from Texas that California just can't do barbecue. Um, they just can't. And even the places in California that claim to be Texas barbecue, I'm looking at you Heritage Barbecue down in San Juan, it's, it's hot garbage, guys. It, it's just, it's not good. And, and you may think, wow, this is really harsh. I can't believe that he would say something like this, which if you are thinking that, you're a first-year student, because those of you who have been with me for a while in my ministry know that, that it's just it's a non-starter to talk about barbecue that's not from Texas. So, um, but... But here's the thing, what I've noticed is when people leave this state and they go to the South, and especially they go to Texas where, you know, barbecue's actually done well, um, or done at all, and uh, they enjoy real barbecue, they come back and they come to me and they apologize. They're like, Pastor Peter, we are so sorry that we tried to lead you astray um, by trying to tell you that something like Lucille's is good. Um, and they come back and they're, they're, they're apologetic. And why are they apologetic? Well, they're apologetic because they've, they've experienced the real thing. They've gone down and they've realized, man, this is the best. This is better than anything else. I, I would never want to go back to what that left coast state claims is smoked brisket. Because it's just, I mean, it might as well be roadkill, right? Um, because you've tasted the real thing and you realize how good it is. And then you see, man, what I had before, I don't even want it anymore. Well, guys, as much as a defender and an evangelist and apologist for Texas barbecue as I may be, uh, the writer of Hebrews is that plus so much more when it comes to defending the supremacy of Jesus over anything and everything. He's going to say over and over and over and over and over in this book that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better than anything and everything that you can imagine. Whatever it is, Jesus is better. A book like this, it's important to do some background because this is not written by somebody who starts out by saying, hey, the Apostle Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ to the church in in fact, the, the writer just gets straight after it. He just immediately starts the book. And we're left to kind of say, well, who, who's talking to us? And some people have suggested that it was Paul. Uh, but honestly, that has fallen pretty far out of favor now so that there's not really anyone who, who still claims that it was the Apostle Paul. And there's reasons why. I mean, we could get into it. It's, it's, it's a little bit boring to get into. The, the technical level of the Greek that's used is not what Paul used in his other letters. Plus, the fact that Paul opened with a greeting in his other letter, letters that identified him as the writer. So we don't really think this was Paul who wrote Hebrews. Others think, well, maybe it was Barnabas. In fact, Tertullian, who wrote in the second century AD, so we're dealing in the 100s AD range, he thought it was Barnabas. Another guy uh, thought it was Luke, that Luke wrote, because it's similar to Luke's Greek grammar and style. So they said, well, Luke is probably the one that wrote it. Others, uh, starting with Luther, uh, suggested that it was Apollos that wrote it. If you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul's saying, who is, what is Paul, what is Apollos? Uh, Luther said, well, maybe it was Apollos that wrote the epistle. At the end of the day, we don't know. And that's the safest place to be with the book of Hebrews. We don't have to have a specific author. We don't have to be able to say, hey, you know what, this is who wrote it. And if you're wondering, well, then can we have confidence that it should be in our Bibles? The answer to that is yes. When we look at the tradition of the early church and the letters that were being circulated, we can know with, with fair, fairly good amount of certainty that this was included in the earliest uh, authoritative letters to the churches. And so, yes, it should be in our Bibles, but no, we don't know who wrote it. 
Another thing we don't really know about this book is who the original recipients were. You think of a book like Galatians, and it was written to the churches in Galatia. A book like Ephesus was written to the, or Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. Well, this one just is literally, it starts out to the, to the Hebrews. To the Hebrews. Who were the Hebrews? Well, it's likely based on the content of the book that these were converted Jews that were now Christians. So Jewish Christians who were even under some persecution, and we'll talk about that as the study goes along, but under some threat against them for being a part of the church. And at the time, the the Jewish religion was recognized by Rome, but Christianity was not. And so a lot of them were facing the temptation to say, well, maybe we should go back to, maybe we should go back to what we had. Maybe we should go back to the Lucille's of religion that we had instead of holding fast to Jesus. And the writer's writing to them saying, hey, don't do that. Jesus is better. We don't know the author. We don't know the recipients. We can be fairly certain about the date. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, uh, the author implies that, that he and the recipients are second-generation Christians, that they heard the gospel from people who heard it first from the apostles, first from Jesus. And so because of that, we can date them to somewhere between 50 to 60 AD at the, the earliest of the writing. And then the fact that he doesn't reference a major event that took place in AD 70 in Jerusalem. What took place You guys who like history and that sort of thing. What took place in Jerusalem in AD 70? The destruction of the temple. Yeah, rhymes with pimple, starts with a T. Sort of rhymes with pimple, not really. Um, But yeah, the destruction of the temple. And that's that's a big motif. If, If the writer is talking about how much better Jesus is than the high priest, which he does. If he talks about how much better Jesus is than the sacrificial system, which he does. If he talks about how much better Jesus is than the Old Testament covenants, which he does in this book, it would make sense if the temple had been destroyed already for him to point to that and say, hey, look, the temple's not here, but we've still got Jesus. You see that Jesus is better. So with all that said, we can kind of put the date between somewhere around AD 50 to AD 70 that this writer was writing. But why? What was the purpose? Well, I've already kind of alluded to it. It was to write to this group of Jewish believers who were tempted to walk away from the faith because things were getting difficult. It was getting difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Does that strike a chord with any of you? As we look around our culture, it's getting difficult for us to be followers of Jesus. Yeah, right? And the temptation is going to rise for you to say, well, maybe I'm done with this whole Jesus thing. You know, maybe I am going to just put this whole Christianity thing under wraps for a while and kind of see how the culture settles, and then I'll pull it back out if it's, if it's a little easier. Well, he's writing to them. He's writing to people in a similar circumstance, and he's telling them, don't let go of Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. In fact, as the title of this message says, it's all about Jesus. The book is going to go through and say that Jesus is better in the fact that his revelation is better than anything else we've ever experienced. He's going to say, look, he's better than the angels. He's going to say, hey, he's, he's better than Moses, than the one who gave the law to the Israelites. He's going to say, hey, he's, he's better than the high priest who continually has to offer these sacrifices. Hey, Jesus is better than the sacrificial system because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all times. He's going to say, you know what? Jesus has the the better covenant because it's a new covenant in his blood, which brings with it the permanent forgiveness of our sins. And so this is the book of Hebrews. With that in mind, look at Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to get through Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, and the first half of verse 2 tonight. I promise I'll take bigger sections in the future. But we're going to start here. 
In fact, begin before we even get to verse two. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. Stop right there for a second. Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke. You guys know, right, that the, that the God of this universe, the God of all creation, is not a silent God. In fact, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The day-to-day pours out speech. And night-to-night reveals knowledge. And their voice goes to the end of the earth. And their, their speech and their words are, are heard to the end of the world. He says, in the heavens, he, God, has put a, a tent for the sun which runs its circuit like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The psalmist David there is talking about, hey, God has made himself known because he's created all of this and so he's speaking through creation. The apostle Paul picks up that on that in Romans chapter one, doesn't he? He says, hey, look, God has been revealing his invisible attributes. They've been plain, understandable to us ever since the beginning of creation. What does that mean? That we've been able to look at this world and conclude if we use our minds, hey, this world was created. It was designed. It didn't just pop into existence at some big bang. This world is not accidental, right? There's all kinds of different arguments with apologetics that you can get into that in that with the teleological argument and the cosmological argument and all these things that line up to prove and to show without a doubt, hey, look, the the world had a beginning. We cannot get around that. And if it had a beginner, it must have, or beginning, it must have had a, a beginner, right? The uncaused first cause, we would say that's God. But God is not silent. God has spoken. He's spoken through creation. But then what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, look, he's also spoken, not just through creation, but by what we call special revelation, which is another word to say, to describe what the, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, this, that's the book for me, right? The Bible. And I want us to, to think about that, that that's what we're studying right now. What you have in your hands what you have on your phone that takes up less, a, less than a gig on your phone, right, is the inspired word of God, the God-breathed revelation. We're not talking about a textbook. We're not talking about the Koran. We're not talking about the Book of Mormon. We're not talking about Plato's Republic or anything by Socrates or philosophical work. We're not talking about any of those things. We are talking about a book that stands alone, unique and separate and distinct and different because it is the verbally recorded, written, God-breathed word of God. And without apology, let me make it absolutely clear, there was no other source outside of this book for the written word of God. This is it, exclusive, the word of God. It's God's written revelation of himself, his words written down by human authors, transmitted and preserved across the centuries more thoroughly and accurately than any work before it or after it. That's what we have in this book. And that's what this author is talking about long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke. Write down this for point number one tonight, if you would. Understand that God is not silent. Understand that God is not silent. How many people have said, man, I just wish that God would speak to me. I wish that God would make himself known to me. I wish that God would give me something so that I could know that he's there. And and I just want to tell you, he has, and it's right here. It's in the the 66 books of this volume called the Bible. 
And before you roll your eyes at me and say, well, this is just church speak and Christian propaganda, let me give you a few facts about our Bible. But let me start with having you imagine a scenario. Imagine, if you will, that one of your profs goes up to the, the front of the, the room at the beginning of a class and reads a paragraph out loud to you. And in reading the paragraph out loud to you, before they do this, they say to you, hey, you know, I want you to listen closely because after I'm done reading this out loud, I want all of you to write down what I've said to you. I want you to write down, it's one paragraph, listen to what I say, write down what I say. Okay, so let's say there's 25 of you in the class. Out of those 25, are there going to be mistakes in the written record of what that prof has said verbally to you up front? Sure. But if you take all 25 of those copies and you put them all together and you read them all, are you going to have a general idea of what the prof said at the end of that? Yeah, you are, right? Because you're going to be able to compare and see where the similarities are and see generally what the train of thought is and the argument is that the prof was making. But now let me change the scenario. The prof goes up front and rather than saying, hey, I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say and write down everything I say, the prof puts a slide up on the screen and it has a paragraph and it's written right there for you in the English language, proper grammar, punctuation, everything else, it's right there for you on the screen. And the prof says, I want everybody in the room to write this down word for word. Is there going to be mistakes? Yeah, probably. There's still going to be a couple mistakes in there. But if you were to collect everybody's manuscripts in that room, everybody's copies in that room and sit down and go through all 25 of them, are you going to be able to tell probably with pretty good accuracy word for word what that original paragraph said, even if you never saw it? Yeah. You may understand what I'm driving at here, but what I'm talking about is what's called textual criticism. And it's something that we have a leg up on with the Bible over every other book, ancient text, ancient work that has ever existed. Let me give you some stats on this. Number of manuscripts. Homer, we've got about 1,800 extant manuscripts, okay? So the Iliad, author of the Iliad, about 1,800 extant manuscripts for Homer. How about this guy, Demosthenes? Anybody ever study any Demosthenes, Greek order? We've got 200 extant manuscripts of Demosthenes. Herodotus, Greek historian, we've got eight extant manuscripts of Herodotus. How about Plato? How many of you have had to read Plato's Republic at some point in time in your school career? Or you studied the concept or your, your teachers taught you about Plato? Seven extant manuscripts. So we're basing our understanding of what Plato said based on seven, okay? Okay. Comparing and contrasting those seven, going, okay, we feel like we, we've got the gist of it. We're going to teach Plato. Plato's factual, and, uh, and we're going to teach it as accurate and true. And, and I'm not arguing that it shouldn't be, but how about Tacitus, Roman historian? How many, what, what does that number say? It says two. Two. Caesar. Caesar wrote Gaelic Wars, okay? Gaelic Wars, we've got 10 manuscript copies. Here's another guy named Pliny. Pliny. Uh, this is Pliny the, the, uh, the elder here, and he was a Roman philosopher. We've got seven from Pliny. Let's talk about the New Testament for a second. 5,800 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts. 5,800 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts. Beyond those, there's over 20,000 New Testament manuscripts in other languages, whether that be in Coptic or Aramaic or in Hebrew 
So what that means, y'all, is that what we have to be able to look at, to compare and contrast and stack the manuscripts and look to see what do we have in the Word of God blows every single other one of those out of the water. And yet how many people do we have questioning what Homer actually wrote or what Plato actually wrote? Or can we really trust what Plato really wrote? I mean, not come on, we've only got seven manuscripts. No, they're going to teach it as fact. Well, y'all, our reliability that we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the books that you hold in your hand is far greater than any of those ancient authors that everyone is willing to just take it at face value. But let's not just talk about the, eight, the, the number of manuscripts. Let's talk about the, the proximity to the original. Let's, let's go there, okay, for a second. So let's, let's go back. Here's Homer, okay? So proximity to the original. Uh, Homer wrote around 900 BC. Uh, the, the earliest manuscript we have from Homer is about 400 years uh, after that in 500 BC. So there's 400 years from the original writing to, uh, to, to Homer's earliest manuscript that we have, 400 years. How about Demosthenes? We've got uh, 1,400 years that separate Demosthenes' original writing, his time that he lived, to the earliest manuscript that we have. Uh, Herodotus, there's another 1,400 years with Herodotus. Uh, Plato, how about Plato? Well, Plato is a little bit better. He's 1,300 years from the time he wrote to the original manuscript, or to the, the earliest manuscript that we have of him. Tacitus, 1,000 years. Caesar, 1,000 years. Pliny, the elder, 750 years. Does anybody know how close the earliest New Testament manuscript is from the original writing? 43? Let's cut that in half. 25 years. 25 years. Within the lifespan of the original author. And why do I bring this up? Well, proximity to the original implies accuracy, yes. Because those that received the original knew the original. If these copies are being made and these copies are being made fraudulently, they can throw the flag on the plane and say, that's not actually what I wrote or that's not what he wrote. And we have a lot more than just that one that's 25 years in proximity. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about the Old Testament? This is all New Testament stuff. So Old Testament, we've got over 10,000 manuscripts of, old, of the Old Testament. And, and also the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the, the 1900s. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they were 1,000 years older than any previous Old Testament document that we had. The Dead Sea Scrolls date back to about 250 BC. They were 1,000 years older than any other Old Testament document that we had. And guess what? They lined up exactly with that previous thousand-year newer Old Testament manuscript, which testifies to the consistency of translation. Oh, and there's also recently been found, a, a, and this is super cool, it's in the, a museum in Jerusalem. There's a silver scroll, so it's super thin, super fine, and it's, it's uh, I believe it has a portion of Isaiah on it from 650 BC. It's crazy, and guess what? You read that portion of Isaiah, and guess what it matches? The, the Isaiah in your Bible. Well, what, is, what does all this mean for us? How do manuscripts work? Why do manuscripts matter? Why are you even going over this? Well, let me show you how manuscripts work. Let's say you had manuscript one, John 3, 16, and it had for God so loved the world, but the, the, the O was missing in loved. And you, you'd never encountered this before. So you're like, okay, maybe it's lived. I don't know. Maybe it's, 
maybe it's some word that I'm not understanding. And so then you're like, well, what do other manuscripts say? So you go to manuscript number two, and it's like, well, for God so L-O, and then the V is missing. It's like, okay, well, I think it's loved, but let me, let me look again. Manuscript number three, okay, God so L-O-V, now the E is missing in that one. And then you look at manuscript number four, God so L-O-V-E, and, and the D is missing. With all of that manuscript evidence, as you're comparing the same text across all those manuscripts, can you tell what the word is? Yeah, you can tell what the word is, right? With some precision. Or maybe it goes like this. You've got a manuscript that says that he gave his only son. That's manuscript one. You've got another one that says, okay, that he gave his only son. You're like, this is great. And then you've got this manuscript that says that he sent his only son. Well, there's a difference there because the word in, it gave in the Greek has a sacrificial meaning to it. And if it's just sent, it loses some of that. But then you look at the last one and it's, again, he gave his only son. Based on that, can you tell which one's the errant manuscript? Yeah right? It's the one that says sent because you're looking at all the others and all the others are stacking up one way. You know, that's what we have people that are way smarter than I am doing right now with these biblical manuscripts. And they're finding more and more and more and more all the time. And guess what? It's affirming and confirming the fact that we can trust the Bible, that God has spoken through his word. And the Bible is the most reliable book that you can find on the face of the planet. Why? Because it's God's word. Track with me. I know this is different than what you're used to for me. I'm, I'm going to preach point two, so don't worry. I'm going I'm to bring stuff about Jesus in the Bible in point number two, but I just want you to be encouraged by this because I want you to have confidence in what he's talking about here when he says, long ago at many times, God spoke. God is not silent. This guy, Clement of Rome, okay, AD 95. So some of the, the, the disciples, John, still on the scene at this point in time. Clement writes a letter to the Corinthians. And in that letter to the Corinthians, he references Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and references them, quotes them as the words of Jesus. Okay, we're talking 60 years after the crucifixion at this point in time. And the, 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 these biblical books are on the scene being referenced and quoted as the words of Jesus. Jesus' followers are still alive right now. So they could contradict, they could refute if they needed to. Here's this guy, Papias, Papias of Hierapolis. And in AD 130, he references all four gospels in his writings. So we're second century AD. He's saying, look, all four gospels. Here they are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This guy, Polycarp, he was a disciple of John. John who wrote the gospel of John. John who wrote the epistles of John. John who wrote the book of Revelation. And he references Matthew, Mark, and Luke as containing the words of Jesus. And he was taught by John. How about... Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. So he's like John's grand baby disciple, whatever, in a weird cousin once removed, disciple once removed kind of way. But he was a disciple of Polycarp and he writes of 23 of the 27 New Testament books that we have and cites them as authoritative scripture. Okay, but they were all within the church. Well, how about this cat? Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, not a follower of Jesus. And in AD 37, he writes about Jesus as the leader of the Christians, and he says who was also crucified. A historian referencing the historical fact of Jesus' crucifixion. Then we talked about Pliny the Elder. Here's Pliny the Younger, who was his, I think, nephew. Lived AD 62 to, to 113. He was a Roman lawyer and politician, and he wrote of Christians gathering on a particular day of the week to worship Jesus as God. And in fact, his quote went further than that because he even talks about them changing their behavior out of an allegiance and devotion to Jesus. Okay. 
the Jewish Talmud, which again is, is written by Jews, so that's hence the Jewish Talmud, uh, not friends of, of Christianity, they record the, the time of the early church and they say this, Jesus was the son of an adulteress, because that's their interpretation of the, what, the virgin birth. That he was the son of an adulteress, a practitioner of magic, why? Because of the miracles that he performed, and that he was crucified on the eve of Passover. So all this to say, guys, I, I want you to see that the, the, the Bible is not just a fairy tale book that was made up. It's well attested to. In fact, it's better attested than all of the other books that we can throw on the table and say, well, what about this book? What about this book? What about this book? We can stack up the manuscripts. We can stack up the evidence. We can stack it up and say, look, the Bible wins in the end. And if you guys are, if, if, if your thirst is triggered by this, two things let me suggest to you. Number one, you can go back to a series that I preached with the bridge like two or three years ago called Fact or Fiction. And I think it still lives online. And you can listen to those. It was an apologetic series. And I covered a lot about reliability of the Bible and other things in that series. Go back and listen to that. But then number two, and here's a shameless plug for you. I'm going to be teaching apologetics at CBI this fall. And so that's going to be Sunday mornings from 9 to 845 to 1045. That's what it is. Across the street at CBI, I'm going to be teaching apologetics. You can come take my class and I will grade you. And I will teach you about making a defense for your faith and loving the fact that we can trust in who Jesus is more and more. Why go through all this, Pastor PJ? Well, because I want you to know that when we hold up the Bible and say that this is the word of God, that this is the word of God, and that's reliable. Guys, there's even a, a guy out there named Bart Ehrman who is not a, a, he's a, he's a critic. He's got a, a whole movement called the Jesus Quest where he's trying to uncover what Jesus actually said. But here's the thing. Even Bart Ehrman says, what we have in manuscript evidence demonstrates that the Bible is what the Bible originally was written down to be. And he, beyond that, he says, even the, the different manuscripts, there's no variant in any manuscript out there that questions any key Christian doctrine. In other words, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the authority of the Bible, the, the sinlessness of, of Jesus. None of that is questioned in any of these manuscripts. And this is a guy who doesn't like Christians admitting to that fact. He just doesn't believe that what we have is accurately recorded. And really, guys, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make that decision. But let me, in, in you making that decision, let me put a little burn your saddle on this. So Judas, one of the original 12 disciples, we know what happened to him, right? He, after Jesus' crucifixion, went out and, and hung himself. So that left 11 of the original 12, okay? So John then, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the Epistles of John, and then the book of Revelation. John died while in exile on the island of Patmos. And uh, we're not talking like a tropical island, we're talking about a desert island, right? So John was exiled there, died in exile of old age. So that's two out of the 12. The other 10, you know what happened to them? They were executed for their faith, tortured for their faith, martyred for what they had written. It's one thing to preach a lie. It's another thing to die for a lie. So I think there's a lot of weight behind us saying the Bible is God's word. And we can trust it. We can believe in it. We can own it. We can love it. And we can rejoice that God is not spoken. He has given us his word. And what's his word about? Jesus. His word is all about Jesus. Look again at the text. Long ago and at many times, God spoke to our fathers. He says first here, by the prophets. 
by the prophets, many times and in many different ways. Here's some of the ways that, that God spoke in the past. He spoke through the law, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. The giving of the law, the giving of the commandments. God is revealing who he is, that he's a God of holiness, that he's grabbed Israel and made Israel a people for his own possession, and that he wants them to be different and called out and sanctified and separate and holy themselves. So God is a God of holiness. And then we find that God has spoken through the Old Testament covenants, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Moses. And then I know it's out of order, but most important is the covenant with Abraham because the covenant with Abraham impacts you and I because in Genesis 12, 3, it says that God was going to bless all of the, the, the nations through one of the offspring of Abraham. That offspring of Abraham would be the person of who? Church answer, one, two, three. Jesus, right? And Jesus has blessed us through going to the cross and dying for our sins so that you can be forgiven and raising from the dead so that you can know that you will live with him forever and in sending his Holy Spirit so that you can follow him as your king, right? So, so he's spoken through the covenants. How else has God spoken in, in long ago at many times in many ways? Through the historical writings, Joshua through Esther, recording the history of his people, Israel, recording what he's doing there. And also, oh, by the way, in one of those, and I forgot this covenant up there, but there's another covenant that shows up in the historical writings that God makes with a guy named David about one of David's offspring. Who would that be, by the way? Rhymes with Shemizah, starts with a G. J, G, J. There you go. That's what I get for trying to be cute, huh? Yeah, Jesus. It does start with a G, just phonetically. Jesus, right? And so he's spoken through the historical writings. What else? He's spoken through the wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He's talked about wisdom. He's talked about worship. He's talking about his character. He's a refuge. He's a fortress. He's revealing who he is through this time. He's also talked and spoken through the, the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. So when he says that long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. When you read the word prophets, I don't want you to just think about all the books that you struggle to understand when we get to them in the DBR. I want you to think also about the, the entirety of the, the Old Testament. The Old Testament as a whole, that God has spoken through all of these means as he's carried us through uh, the first 39 books of the Bible. But yet at the same time with all of those books and in all of those ways and in all of those times and all of those methods that he spoke to us, here's the thing at the end that we need to understand. This was all promise without fulfillment. That there was something still missing. In Luke 24 Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples, and they don't know who he is at the time. And they're like, hey, we thought this Jesus was going to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted them in the scriptures that the things concerning himself. You see that the, the Bible is about who? Jesus. It's about Jesus. And in the Old Testament, he had spoken. And it was, it was wisdom able to make them ready for salvation, as Paul tells Timothy. Hey, you've been acquainted with the writings of old, the Old Testament, which are able to make you ready for salvation. When, when Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he said, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. And Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Yes, there were Old Testament saints, Old Testament followers of God who were saved, but they had an unfulfilled picture of what this was all about. They didn't know who. They didn't know Jesus. And this will eventually lead, and we'll get there in like seven years, in Hebrews 11, 
when after the, the hall of faith section, the writer says this, to these, to David, to Samson, to, to Abraham, to Moses, to Noah, to all of these superstars in the Old Testament, and all these, though commended through their faith, they did not get what was promised. Since God had provided something, what does it say there? What does it say? Something what? Something better. Jesus is better. God has given something better to you. You have a leg up on Noah and Moses and all those guys. Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of them. Daniel, David, you've got something better than they have because you know Jesus. And then apart from us, they should not be perfect. In other words, apart from us and Jesus coming for us and dying on the cross for us and rising from the dead, that their faith is vain, that that's what their faith was anticipating, but they, they, they didn't know it, they didn't understand it. You see the advantage and the privilege that we have in knowing Jesus. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke. But now, notice that, the contrast in verse two, it's unavoidable. But now, but now he has spoken to us by his son. Full stop right there for right now. A commentator named F.F. F. Bruce. He's got initials for his first name, which means he's probably a cool dude. But he says this. He says, the earlier stage of revelation was given in a variety of ways. God spoke in his mighty works of mercy and judgment and made known through his servants, the prophets, the meaning and purpose of these works. They were admitted into a secret council, the prophets were, and they learned his plans in advance. He spoke in the storm and thunder to Moses and in a still small voice to Elijah, priest and prophet, sage and singer were in their several ways his spokesman yet all the successive acts and varying modes of revelation in the ages before Christ came did not add up to the fullness of what God has to say. Think about that for a minute, guys. That includes Mount Sinai with Moses hearing from the Lord and coming down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing so much that people couldn't stand to see him. And they're like, hey, Moses, put the, put the veil over your face. This includes Isaiah 6, when, when Isaiah is before the throne of God and, and he sees Jesus on the throne and he says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. The writer's saying, hey, look, we've got something better now because we have Jesus and he's spoken by his son. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. These last days mark that time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And we're in the middle of that ourselves right now. They're the last days because there's nothing else we're waiting for now. The, so much has already been fulfilled in, in God speaking to us by his son. We're not waiting for any more revelation. It's already been given to us. It's the final revelation that he's provided for us. He's spoken to us by his son. Notice what he doesn't say. He's spoken to us by what? By the apostles by the disciples. He could have, but he wants us to understand that the Bible is about Jesus. That the teaching of the disciples is about Jesus. The teaching of the apostles, it, it, it's about Jesus. The Old Testament was setting the stage for Jesus, anticipating Jesus, longing for Jesus. The New Testament is saying, look, here is Jesus, and here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And at the end of the day, y'all, here's what that means for us. That means that the entire Bible, point number two tonight is this, it's always been about Jesus. 
All of it is about Jesus. Either anticipating him, prophesying about his coming, drawing out the fact that we need him, telling us about him in the gospels. Here he is, here's Jesus. Reflecting on his life in the in the epistles and saying, This is how we should live our lives now that Jesus has come and Jesus is here and we see Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. I want us to do a little thought exercise. I want you to imagine living first century AD before what we read about in the Gospels. I want you to think about living first century AD and that, that you're a, an Israelite, you're a Jewish young man or young woman. And yeah, you, you know the Old Testament, you know the Torah, you know the commandments, the thou shalt and thou shalt not. And you have the temple and you have the priests who are God's representatives to you and vice versa, your representatives before God. And yet at the same time, you really have no understanding of a, a personal relationship with God, certainly not one as your God as your, your heavenly father. And yeah, you know that the, the penalty for sin is death and the sacrificial system reminds you of that. And every time you go to the temple with friends or family to bring your sin offerings and your guilt offerings and they're slaughtered and the part of the blood is even sprinkled on you, you're reminded that your sin deserves death. And you know the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. You shall have no other gods, right? You, you know all of those things. You can recant them and yet at the same time recount them. And yet at the same time, you also realize that you fail every single day to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And you wrestle with what to do with that. Every year there's this day that comes along that you look forward to and it's called the Day of Atonement. And you look forward to it because the high priest comes out and he, he's gone in before the Holy of Holies. And it's like your, your slate is wiped clean for the year. And he takes this scapegoat and he confesses the sins of the people, your sins on the head of the scapegoat. And he, he takes the scapegoat and it's kind of this weird tradition, sends the scapegoat out into the wilderness. And it's a picture of God removing your sin for you from you. And, and every single time that happens, every single day of atonement, you get a sense of relief in thinking, okay, whew, man, Slate's wiped clean. It's a fresh start. God has, has wiped out my sins over the past year. And yet at the same time, every single year at the Day of Atonement, you know there's going to have to be another Day of Atonement next year because you're going to sin again. And, and you really, while you feel the joy at, at watching that goat leave, you, you understand that your sin still seems to be there. And you know in the meantime, because of that, you're going to have to bring your sin offerings and your guilt offerings back to the temple repeatedly over and over and over again. And yet you really don't know if these blood of bulls and goats and lambs and things really accomplishes anything. And then one day you're walking by the temple and you hear one of the priests reading this passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And you hear that and you think to yourself, who is this prophet speaking of? Who is this one who bears the sins of many and makes intercession for them? The next day you happen by the temple again, and this time there's a different reading. This time it's, it's from the prophet Zechariah, and you hear these words from Zechariah 12 and 13. Zechariah 12, 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a, st- a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad, Ramon, and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. On that day, Zechariah 13, 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And you hear those words, and again, you stop in your tracks, and you think to yourself, who is that talking about? What is this fountain of of, of grace that's going to clean me from my sin. The next day you decide to go out into the wilderness because out by the Jordan River, which is not too far away from where you live, you hear about this guy that had been out there and his message was a little bit strange and he was dressed weird and people were going out and being washed by him in the Jordan River. And you're like, I've got to go see what's going on. And, and as you get near and as you approach and still in the back of your mind is Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 13 and the day of atonement and frustrated with your sin and and your inability to to be free from your sin and cleansed from your sin and wishing there was something that was more permanent, something that was more tangible, something to take away your sins. And you walk up and you're trying to get a view and you're trying to see who this guy is in the water and what he's doing because he's, he's calling out the Pharisees and people are being stirred up by this guy. And all of a sudden you hear his voice above all the crowd say this, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. all of a sudden you think, is this the guy? Is this the one? Is this the one that's going to bear my transgression and make intercession for me, plead my my righteousness? Is is, is he the one that's going to open up this fountain that's going to finally cleanse me from my sin because I, I need that and I don't have that? Could this be the one? John 1, 1 begins, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos, the message of God. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, John 1.14. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is whom he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But this one, this Jesus, he has exegeted the Father. He has made him known to us. He has explained him to us. Could this be the one? I mean, think about that. Think about the relief that the disciples must have felt when they realized that this is the guy. And that wasn't until after the cross, but I mean, they're being brought up. They're they're not church kids. They're not Awana kids. They didn't win the Timothy Award. They've been grown up in the sacrificial system, having to bring the bulls and the goats and the lambs to offer atoning, atoning sacrifices for their sins year after year after year. And at the same time, they're going, man, I wish, I wish I had some confidence that this was doing something. And now they've got Jesus. Even the prophets, First Peter says, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. They want to get it. They want to understand. And the prophets were serving not themselves because they didn't fully understand, but you. Because now you know Jesus. And it's always been about Jesus. It's always been anticipating Jesus, pointing toward Jesus, looking for Jesus, looking to Jesus hoping for Jesus, and then Jesus shows up. And for you and I, Jesus has shown up. He's here. Here's the thing, y'all. The purpose of God's revelation is always to make himself known and to draw us to himself. That's why God has revealed himself. To make himself known so that we know who he is and then to draw us to him. And nowhere is that done more clearly than in Jesus. That's why Jesus is different from the prophets and the apostles. Because he's God's, as the writer says, God's son. That's why the writer will say in Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 through 40, and these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. The fullness of his revelation that we know Jesus. What is the revelation of Jesus? What has he done? Well, it's his word, his person, and his work. It's the word of Jesus. It's the Bible. It's what we find written in the New Testament, what we find written in the word of God. This is the word of Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus, but it's also his person. It's who he is. It's that he's the the eternal son, the second member of the Trinity, that he is fully God. True light from true light, God from God, right? That, That he is fully divine and he is the son of God and that that is who he is and he is explaining God to us. That's part of his revelation is his person, but it's also what? It's also his, his work, which involves the cross and the empty tomb. Dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. So let me implore you, let me plead with you. Don't miss Jesus. Don't ignore Jesus. Don't domesticate Jesus. 
your mom's shop at Hobby Lobby. Leave Jesus on the shelf at Hobby Lobby. That's not Jesus. That's some white dude with long, ugly hair. Some, yeah, don't, that's not Jesus. Don't domesticate him. Don't truncate him. If you're going to want Jesus, want all of him. Don't replace him with a cause or a movement. Look, guys, causes and movements don't save. Don't try to change him or his word. And certainly don't reject him. Y'all, fundamentally, here's what I want you to think about tonight as far as what God has done by speaking about, or speaking through, rather, Jesus, by Jesus. The first thing is this, God, God spoke by Jesus through Jesus' death on the cross so that your sins might be forgiven. We needed that. My sins need to be forgiven. Your sins need to be forgiven. Second, God spoke by Jesus through his resurrection so that you and I can live forever with him. Revelation 21, where there's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness. Man, I want to be there. I want to be with Jesus. God spoke by Jesus by that tomb being empty and Jesus rising from the dead so that you and I, if we have put our faith in him, we can live forever with him. And then third, God spoke by Jesus by giving us the spirit so that we can follow Jesus as our Lord, as our King. That's it in a nutshell. It's what it means that he spoke by Jesus. But guys, he's not silent. He's given us his son. He's given us Jesus. He's helped us to understand now that we know Jesus, what it means that we are saved by grace through faith. That we can understand concepts like our justification, that we are declared righteous before God, that our redemption, that we've been bought by the Lord our, the concept of our adoption, that now we are part of his family and we can call him father. The part of our reconciliation that we who are far off have now been brought near. We can understand all of that. Why? Because he has spoken to us by Jesus. We have something better. Jesus is better. The question is, are you listening to him? Are you listening to Jesus? I wonder if somebody were to, to come up to you and, and ask you the question, hey, what are you about? What would you say? What are you about? Oh, maybe you're about a, a career that you've chosen. Well, this is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. This is my life. This is my path. This is what I'm studying. Maybe if somebody said, what are you about? You would say, well, I'm about my athletics. This is what I, I'm, I'm a super good basketball player. Somebody says, what are you about? You would say, I'm about my family. They would say, well, what are you about? You would say, man, I'm, I'm about my relationship that I'm in. It's the best thing ever, and I love this person. We're going to get married and all that good stuff. When would you get to saying, I'm about Jesus? Because that's what this whole thing is about. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what this whole life is about. It's about Jesus. Yeah, this letter is written to a group of Christians that are, are tempted to go back to their old style of living. 
tempted to, to leave behind following Jesus and to go back and to say, man, I, I'm going to go back here because it was just easier. And the writer's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Because Jesus is better. And all of this is about Jesus. And if you leave Jesus, you lose everything. <laughs> don't leave Jesus. Be about Jesus. And this book is, is written to you and me at the same time, saying to us, look, as this world, as the heat turns up against us as Christians, as Christians and it is turning up, be about Jesus. Don't be about a cause. All the things you love, if you are genuinely a Christian, y'all, all the things that you love about the causes that the world is championing right now, all those things that you would say, well, we should be this, that, and the other thing. If you're about Jesus, you'll get all of those things thrown in. But don't be about this and then tack Jesus onto your cause. Jesus isn't interested in your cause, doesn't care about your cause. He's not about your cause. He's about his cause. Are you? Love Jesus most, guys. Long ago, many times, in many ways, he's spoken to us by his prophets. Guys, God is a God who has spoken, and he's spoken in a way that's reliable and trustworthy, and it's the word of God, and it's all about Jesus. The question for us that I hope to answer through this series is, are you all about Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this book. Thank you for that truth, that reality, that glorious fact that you have spoken and not remained silent and that you've spoken to us and you've given us Jesus and explained yourself through the Old Testament, but then provided the full realization of what you were talking about and what you were anticipating in the person of Jesus. And now we stand here and we've got the Bible in our hands, the fullness of it, all 66 books, and we can look at it and we can understand it and we can read it and comprehend it, God, and we can see Jesus and hear the call to believe in him because he died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we can live forever with him and he's given us his spirit so that we can follow him as our king and as our lord god the question is what are we doing with that i can't help but be reminded of the passage that says of him who has been given much much will be required and certainly all of us have been given so much more than so many who came before us because we know the fullness Lord, i pray that above and beyond anything else you would help us love jesus most and that through loving him most, it would transform everything about us, God. We pray in Jesus' name.